0: So today we are in the book of Luke chapter 3. We're looking at Jesus' genealogy. And we have, believe it or not, we have a, a lot to cover here, so we're going to jump right in. Last week, whenever we began Luke chapter 3, what we were doing is we were looking at verses 1 and 2 to start off, and we saw that what, what Luke was doing is he is putting Jesus' ministry in context. He said Jesus began his ministry in the context of of Tiberius Caesar, of Pontius Pilate, of Herod, of Philip, and he was giving the political scene of Jesus' context of when his ministry began. Then in verse 2, he does the same thing, but instead of giving the the political context of Jesus' ministry, he gives the religious one, where he says, that it was during this time that the high priesthood, you had Annas and Caiaphas, these high priests of of God's temple. And what Luke was doing, is doing two things. He was giving the historical context of Jesus' ministry, but he was also doing this second thing. And the second thing he was doing is he was giving the, the different stories that people could find themselves in. What do I mean by that? What do I mean by the stories that they find themselves in if somebody wanted to in the first century they could align themselves with the story of Rome Rome was the world power it dominated other peoples and armies and subjugated them to their to their authority to associate oneself with Rome was to associate themselves with the winning team Today is Super Bowl Sunday. People will be doing that across the country, uh, claiming, claiming their team was always their team from, from the beginning, right? But they wanted to be associated with the winning team. To be associated with the power and the politics of Rome was to be safe. To associate yourself with power was to be secure, and it was a way to have a ladder to get yourself rising through the ranks. But we also see there was another story that people could associate with. People could align themselves, not with Rome, but with the religion there in Jerusalem, with the priesthood, with the temple. Here, you might not have the power, the safety, and the security of Rome, but there was a different type of comfort here. There was a comfort where you felt righteous. There was a comfortability that gave you a sense of moral superiority, that you were better than the Gentiles. You were better than, than even the Romans. To associate oneself with the story of the religious system gave you even a way to have this quiet rebellion against Rome. And we find ourselves, when we look at the world that we live in, that oftentimes we still go to these two different stories to align ourselves with, that these become our stories, that we like to associate ourselves with power or with a sense of moral superiority. We like this safety and security coming with being on the winning team, of having our politics and our politicians being in place. Or we like having moral superiority, over other people, maybe found in activism or virtue signaling. But what we find in the book of Luke chapter three is that an alternative story is also being given. It's a story where, where John the Baptist is saying, you don't have to find your story in power, and you don't have to find your story in this this moral superiority or this moralism. And he says, there is a third way. He says in Luke chapter 3, in verses 3 through 6, he said this third way is the way of a Savior. That instead of looking for power to find safety and security, instead of looking to moralism for for this, this sense of comfort and superiority, what you can do is you can come to a Savior who will be there for you. Who will give you the safety and the security of salvation? Who will give you the the, not just your own morality, but He will give you His righteousness? And that's what we find in the person of Jesus Christ. When we get to verses 21 and 22, we see that Jesus is being baptized, and it's as if John the Baptist and God the Father and the Holy Spirit are saying, "This is the one." This one, whom the Holy Spirit is descending on as a dove, is is the Savior of the world. In our our children's church ministry, this is just kind of a fun aside, just so you know. In our children's ministry, they they go a long ways to make the stories engaging and interesting. And uh, currently, they're telling the story of Jesus' baptism and Jesus' temptation. Uh, So if your children are in children's church, make sure you ask them about that. Last week, when they were doing the story of Jesus' baptism, my wife she always tries to find like different toys to tell the Bible story with. So John the Baptist was was a Playmobil character, and and you know today we have a Playmobil castle serving as the temple and a stuffed mountain. It's a mountain that's stuffed like a stuffed animal. Last week the Holy Spirit, we looked all over for a dove through our kids' toys. We couldn't find it. Um, so the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus like a pterodactyl, uh, last Sunday, um, which, was, which is pretty amazing. <laughs> there's, there's a book in there somewhere, pterodactyl, Holy Spirit, I don't know. But anyway, so th- that's what was happening in, in the book of Luke chapter 3. There's a third story, an alternative story that's saying... You don't just have to grab and reach for power, and you don't have to grab for morality to to be safe and to be comfortable. But what you can do is you can find yourself in the story of God. And because after Jesus is baptized, what we see is Jesus' genealogy, Jesus' family tree, his his lineage. And we have to ask ourselves, what is Luke doing? Luke is once again, he's painting a broader context If verses 1 and 2 is painting the political and religious context, verses 23 through 38, Luke is painting the, the historical context of where Jesus finds himself. And it's in that context that we see the story of God. So we want to look at that broader story that we find Jesus in. We want to look at the story of God. And when we look when we look at the story of God in this genealogy, one of the things that we find is that it begins at the beginning. But to get to that beginning, we have to go to verse 38. We find that this story explains where we all came from. Verse 38 says that the son of Enos was the son of Seth. Seth was the son of Adam, and Adam was the son of God. When we look at the genealogy of Jesus, it doesn't just stop at King David in the middle, right? Because if the gospel and the lineage stopped at King David, it would be saying this is a gospel for the political elite, for the powerful. It doesn't just go back to, to Moses, because then it would just be the gospel for good people the gospel for moral people. It doesn't go back to Abraham because Abraham was just being, this is just good news and the gospel for the Jews. But this genealogy goes all the way back to Adam and God because it's saying that this good news, this story is all of our story. Every human being finds himself in this story. And we find that the story of Jesus Christ is built upon the foundation that there is a God and that this God made a good creation. As we look at that, if we wanted to read that story, we'd have to go back to Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. And I would make the argument that Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 are some of the most important chapters in the Bible for the believer. Because it tells us a story of where we came from. It tells us a story that God spoke creation into existence by the words of his mouth. That this world that God created is a world of order and a world at peace. Where human beings are made with dignity because the image of God is stamped upon them. I want to stop there for one moment. Because we have this beautiful truth that every human being Has the image of God stamped upon them? I want you to think about the person that you hold the most contempt for. I want you to think about the person that you most despise, that you think about them. And it's almost like you have to swallow the bile that's coming up because you just don't like them. Here, when we get to Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, the story where we all came from, what we learn is the worst human being you can imagine still has dignity, still has value, still has worth because God has so condescended to put his image upon them. And so whenever we treat people with disrespect, who are we? And who do we think that we are that we can treat one with contempt that God has chosen to put his identity upon? Shouldn't that, I mean, and this is like me preaching to the choir here. I'm preaching to myself here because I oftentimes do this. I don't treat people with the value and the dignity and the respect that, that they deserve by being made in the image of God. But here at the beginning, the story where we came from, we read that God placed his image on humanity. And humanity was at peace with God. There was no shame, no guilt, no blame, no blood spilt. That humanity was at peace with each other. That there was no division between husband and wife, but there was unity and purpose and beauty. As Christian, we... As Christians, we believe the story of creation. And I believe they're the most important books and important chapters in the Bible to some extent. I I was in a worldview class. I teach worldview three days a week. Um, And I was in that class, and we were going over chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis. We were talking about creation. And so this is what the exercise I want us to go through class. I said, I want us to think about Genesis 1 and 2 and the teachings of Genesis 1 and 2, the story of where we came from, And I said, what I want us to do is I want us to think about what Genesis 1 and 2 says to our current events. So I said, I want you to think about the different current events, the different hot topics that are out there in the world today and in the media, in the news, in politics, and which of those items would Genesis 1 and 2 speak to? They came up with a list of 15. I was like, wow, that's impressive. I tried to recreate it. I just came up with 14 this week. This is, this is what Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 speaks to. Genesis 1 and 2 speaks to our origins, how we got here. Creation versus evolution. It speaks to environmentalism, stewardship of the world. It speaks of ecology. It speaks of work and how we are to look at the work that God has set before us. Genesis 1 and 2 speaks of marriage and what marriage should look like. Genesis 1 and 2 speaks of sexuality. It speaks of gender. Genesis 1 and 2 can speak to racism. Genesis 1 and 2 can speak to abortion, euthanasia, suicide, the need for rest, gender roles in the creation of culture. Isn't that amazing? that so many of the issues that take up our headlines, that the world is saying, you need to have a stance. The Bible is saying, man, we're covering that in chapters 1 and 2. I would challenge you, Christ Community Church, that as you think about the issues that are coming against you today, that you look to Genesis 1 and 2, that you look to all of Scripture, and you would say, What is Scripture saying about these topics? What is Scripture saying about these issues? We need to understand the world that we live in through a biblical lens and through the creation order. But, of course, we know as we look at Luke chapter 3, verses 23 through 38, that things did not stay good for long, did they? In this story of God that we find ourselves in, it tells us a story of where we came from, but it also tells us a story of what went wrong. It's not long in the biblical account that things go awry because Adam, our first father, and his wife, Eve, our first mother, they became rebels against God. They created divine treason and they despised him and they rejected him as their god and as their king and i use those words treason rebellion reject and despise for particular reasons because it shows the weight of their actions i think oftentimes we look at our own personal sin and we say well it's not that bad like in the grand scheme of things And in comparison with other people, my sin is not that bad. But what Scripture says is that all sin is cosmic treason, is rebellion, is is, is a despising of God and rejection of him as our God and King. Look at Adam and Eve's sin. I mean, couldn't you almost see Adam and Eve as us today saying, it's just a piece of fruit. Like, come on, how bad is that? In the grand scheme of things, how bad is it that we, like, diversified our diet here? But we see the weight of their actions. Their rebellion and rejection of God brought about a curse. It created broken relationships between humanity and its God. It created broken relationships between husband and wife and all people. It broke our relationship with our work and our purpose to where now work is a frustration. And we lose this knowledge of what we are about. And not only that, it broke our world to where we now have thorns and thistles and natural disasters. And it's like, it's like the, the world is, is creating friction upon itself like a joint without any cartilage anymore. When we look at Luke chapter 3, and we look at the genealogy of Jesus Christ, we see the story of where we came from. We came from God, his creation, and his relationship with Adam. But then we also see the story of what went wrong. In verse 38, we see that Adam had a son whose name was Seth. Why is Seth in this genealogy? Well, because one of his brothers was murdered and the other brother was a murderer. And we see that sin grows. We go up the line a little bit and we come to Noah and we see that Noah is in here because the world was so wicked and dark that the God poured out his wrath on the world and destroyed the world with the flood. We go up to verse 34, we see the Hebrew patriarchs the fathers of our faith and we see who they are and what they are about and we see their actions and we see that they too were murderers and swindlers and deceitful and broken and we go on and we read about boaz and you think well boaz is a good character but you see the brokenness in the story of boaz because you have this woman ruth who is widowed as a result of war and is childless and destitute The brokenness of the world made her situation. And then we have David, a hero in our faith, also an adulterer and a murderer. We see that the world went wrong. We see that the world is broken. We see that things are not the way they are supposed to be. And I believe that every human being in their heart and in their gut knows this to be true. Don't you feel this? Don't you know this? That that we have this this knowledge, this feeling that that things aren't right, that things aren't right. But what do we do? We look to solve that problem ourselves. We look to solve that brokenness on our own, don't we? How do we seek to solve the brokenness of our world? Oftentimes, we look to power, and oftentimes we look to moralism. We look to power for safety and security. We look for moralism for a comfort of our own heart. And John the Baptist, through Jesus Christ, he's saying there's another way. I think oftentimes when we're sharing the gospel, oftentimes we're always trained to start with somebody's sin you ever been trained to share the gospel and someone says, well, you start with somebody's sin. You show them that they're a sinner and that they have a need. It's a fine way of sharing the gospel. am not here to beat up on that way. But I think there's another way. And this other way to share the gospel is to speak to the brokenness of the world, of how things are not the way they ought to be. Because I think every human being you speak to and you share the gospel with, they're going to relate to that. And they're going to agree, saying, yeah, something's wrong. And what you can then do is point them to the next part of the story. And the next part of the story of this genealogy is that there is a story of promise and there is a story of hope. Whenever we look at the beginning parts of Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, one of the things that we find is that there is hope given when the world is being cursed. Do you remember this? Adam and Eve sin against God. God comes. He finds them ashamed, hiding, full of guilt, and he begins to punish them. And in that punishment, he begins to curse this world that they live in as a result of their sin. And in the process of that curse, uncursing the serpent, God has this line in Genesis 3.15 where Satan looks at eve and satan looks at the serpent and he says i will put hostility between you and the woman between your offspring and her offspring he will strike your head and you will strike his heel what was going on in genesis chapter 3 is that we have this first promise this first hope of a savior that god looked at the serpent and said you've brought Sin and curse upon this world he looked at eve and said you have brought a curse to your descendants but there is still hope and promise because one day eve one day you will bear a son and that son will crush the head of the serpent one day that son will crush the curse that's broken this world can you imagine Because in the very next verses of of Genesis chapter 3, we read that Eve gets pregnant with her first son. Could you imagine what her thoughts were filled with those nine months? That for nine months, Eve was asking the question, is this child the one? Is this child going to do the thing that I failed to do? Is this child going to crush the head of the serpent and end the curse that's haunting our world? And of course, we know that he was not because it was Cain, and Cain became a murderer. And can you now feel the sadness that Eve went through of knowing that he wasn't the curse crusher, but rather he was now exiled? Then we see the story continue on, and this hope that Eve had that one day God would bring one to crush the head of the serpent and crush the curse— That hope spread to other people. And as other people would have babies and have sons come into the world, there was always this hope saying, is this going to be the one? We see an example of that in in our genealogy here when we come to Lamech. Lamech's story is found in Genesis chapter 5. In Genesis chapter 5, as Lamech is holding his baby boy, he said he named him Noah, saying, this is the one who will bring us relief. From the agonizing labor of our hands caused by the ground that the Lord has cursed. What was Lamech's hope? Lamech's hope was that Noah would be the one who would crush the head of the serpent, that Noah would be the one who would crush the curse and bring peace to our world. But we know the story, don't we? It starts off with positive. Noah receives the favor or the grace of God. He is more righteous than anyone Who's ever lived he brings salvation through huma- to humanity by, by storing them away on an ark, but then we see his fall as well. and instead of crushing the curse, we see Noah giving curses out to his son. But the hope continues on and continues on to a man named Abram. Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 verse three, God comes to him. And he begins to narrow the promise Son, the, 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 the families have covered the face of the earth. They're all over the place. So the question is, who's going to be the one to crush the curse? And he comes to Abraham, and he tells Abraham, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. What was God's promise? God's promise was a narrowing of hope and a narrowing of, of the promise saying, it's going to be from this family. This is going to be the family that the Savior will come through. Then, generations later, we come to a man named David, a king after God's own heart who sought the kingdom of God, who repented of his sin. And God came to him in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16. He said, your house and your kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. What was happening here is God was saying to David, you are going to be in the lineage of the Savior. And your Savior is going to be a king himself. A king whose reign and whose throne will not ever end. But if you know the story, and you know the genealogy, you know that generations after David, his kingdom did fall. And his sons were taken off to captivity in Babylon. But we have this other prophecy from Isaiah chapter 11 verse 1 where the prophet says, I know things look drear. I know things look bad because the the Jesse, the line of David, has been cut off at the trunk. But he gives us prophecy. He says, a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. What is the hope? The hope is is that the line continues, and the promise is still real, and the hope is still real. And we find that that is expressed in the person of Jesus, that Jesus is the curse crusher. He is the one where Adam failed to crush the head of the serpent. He is the one. Jesus is the one who crushes his head, but in the process is bruised. And wounded on the cross. Jesus is a different narrative, a different story, but he is the true story. That the answer to our world's problem is not found in power or in politics. The problems of our world cannot be solved with moralism, but the problems of our world can only be solved by a Savior, and his name is Jesus. But sometimes we stop at the cross, don't we? And we think, well, well, Jesus just came to save us from our sins. But Jesus came to do much more than that. That Jesus came to make all things new. That Jesus came to, to fix what was broken. And we see this beautiful passage in the book of Revelations, chapter 21. It says this. This is the work of Jesus. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven, the first earth has passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity. And he will live with them, and they will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. We see a restoration of Eden here, don't we? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief and crying and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. He also said, write because these words are faithful and these words are true. Christ came as a savior. He is doing what no earthly power can do. He is doing and accomplishing what no human morality can do. He is redeeming us and saving us from the curse of sin. And at the same time, his kingdom is going to make all things new think about the hurt that you've experienced think about the wounds that you have faced and experienced think about the betrayals that still wake you up at night and here is jesus's promise i will wipe those tears out of your eyes I will give you new life. Your hope will be realized. The world will be made new. And somehow, in His divine power, you will look at those events without sorrow, without shame. You will not have those regrets because things will be as they were meant to be. That's the story that we find ourselves in. That's the story that's laid out in Luke chapter three in, in the form of names. Here's my question for you. What story do you find yourself in? Do you find yourself looking for hope and safety and security and power? Do you find yourself trying to find comfort in moral superiority and in virtue signaling and, and, and in being on the right side of history, as our culture says? Or are you saying, I am going to go with the Savior, the Creator, who made things very good and are remaking things very good? good let's find ourselves in his story let's stand and pray